0: You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. All right, we are in the book of Matthew, right. Um, And uh, today we are in chapter 8, if you're following along in your books, it's going to be uh, chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. And uh, we're going to just do this chunk by chunk today. Um, this is kind of the pickup from last week. Jody talked last week about the calming of the storm, told a story about Dolly. He's sick. He went home. Um, so his M&Ms are left over, by the way. Um, just for clarification, you can grab those. He, uh, he talked about the calming of the storm and in verse 27 last week, he mentioned this, the disciples said, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? This is, this is the last verse that he talked about last week. And today we're going to answer that question because the disciples, they didn't know what sort of man this was. They hung out with him all the time. They saw him do all kinds of great things. And yet they still ask this question, What sort of man is this that the wind and the seas obey him? Um, Matthew, to this point, has shown us that Jesus is a king with a new kingdom, right? Um, We have seen King Jesus demonstrate his total authority over creation, doing things that no man had ever done before, right? We just read it, read in previous weeks, uh, Craig taught us about the healing of the lepers, and there's the fever, and Jesus heals all kinds of disease, right? He also calms the storms and the seas, and um, mentioned in a previous verse, he cast out demons, and he did it with what? Just his word. All he had to say was, be healed, or be calm, or be gone. And just with the word of Jesus, he proved himself Lord. In verse 26 last week, um, it read like this, Jesus rebuked the storm. Now, um, Jody apologized to me for not setting my sermon up today. He wanted to do a bump in a set so I could do a spike, um, but uh, he, uh, he, he called me and said he forgot to mention this. It was so good that I thought I'm going to start with it. Um, Jesus rebuked the storm in verse 26. This word rebuke is a term that's used for casting out of demonic activity. You don't rebuke something that doesn't need casting out. You rebuke something that needs to go away and never come back. Jesus rebuked the storm as they were crossing over, and it was a little foreshadow as to what was to come in the next ministry experience for him. Um, It shows us that his ministry was not over. Remember, he was in the boat escaping the crowds, trying to get to the other side. This storm shows us that his ministry that day was not over, but it was just beginning. That when he was most tired, most needing of a rest, most wanting to escape the people, that he was also about to enter into something that was going to require very much of him. In Luke, it says that Jesus is a light for the Gentiles. And this is exactly what Jesus was about to do. He was crossing from one place across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, Jesus was going to enter into the Gentile region and become a light for them. Um, here is a map, because you all know I love the maps, because I don't, I don't know geography, failed it every single year I had it. Um, I, I just didn't like it at all. Um, verse 28, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, okay, I didn't learn about the Gadarenes in history, geography, world, whatever. I needed to look this up. So the the Gadarene region here, you've got the Sea of Galilee, the the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. This is for your your frame of reference, okay? Then we've got this close-up view of the Sea of Galilee over here. And here's a city called Gadara and a city of Gerasa or Gergasa. I'm doing my best on pronunciation, okay? This whole region is called the region of the Gadarenes, okay? So this is the area by which Jesus was crossing over into, and when he crossed over the sea, they assume that he came over right about here. So uh, Mark and Luke mention the city or the region as the Gergesene region. Matthew calls it the Gadarene region. Um, Scholars would tell you it's right over in this area, and the city was probably the city of Gadara, is what they they best make the assumption based on location. Um, proximity and where he was sailing. Take it what you will. He was over here, okay? Um, And this is where he was. It's um, a region of the Gadarenes is in Gentile territory, southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a city of the Decapolis. Remember, it's the 10 cities that make up uh, the the, um, Gentile region over on this side. Um, uh, The city of Gadara was six miles from the Sea of Galilee. Um, and uh, the events that we're going to read about today um, probably happened near the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, down here. So he didn't make it to the city, just near the shoreline on the way to, on the path to Gadara. This entire region was Gentile, and it explains that the local residents had the ability to raise pigs. We're going to read about how their main um, uh, commodity was pig raising. Uh, and it's because they were Gentiles and they could handle the unclean things. Now, um, this area, this region, this city um, is named Gadar or uh, Gadarin from the root word Gadar, which means to be walled off. Um, I just think that's interesting when you look at how this city was built okay, down the pathway to the Sea of Galilee over here. Um, and the tombs that we're going to read about are near the, near the, um, the sea line. But if you come up the path, there's these flat hilltops where these ancient cities were built. They were basically naturally walled off by their geography from the world around them. So the Sea of Galilee sat at the basin of this bowl, and the hills went up to these cities all around. So um, it's not like how I pictured it. We'd get to the Sea of Galilee, and it was flat to the city. You get to the Sea of Galilee, and there's these winding paths that take you up to the hilltop cities that were naturally walled off or protected. By their geography, so they were protected, so that's where it gets their name, right? Naturally walled off by their geography. But the word gadarin, or the word gadar, has a second meaning, which I think is of particular interest for this morning. Uh, oh, yeah, here's the, here's the tombs and the pathway that kind of go up to the top of the city from sea level. You can kind of tell what it looks like. Here's the second meaning of the root gadar, to obstruct the path of life. Just think that this is fascinating as we start to look at this passage this morning. Because we're going to realize that forever in biblical history, this city and this region is recorded as obstructing the path of Jesus. Where they say, no more, don't go any further, the path of life ceases here. Gadar, they were walled off physically, geographically speaking, from their enemies. But they also chose to put a wall to obstruct the path of Jesus in their area and their region, something we don't ever want to be guilty of doing. Verse 28 continues, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Things in this verse would have shocked the first century reader. Um, Jesus purposefully entered Gentile regions. You just didn't do that as a good Jewish person. You Like the people who walked the road to Samaria, they would go around Samaria. It would take them an extra like 20 miles, but they would go around the path so they didn't have to cross through the Samaritan region, the Gentile region, the dirty, filthy region. Good Jews just didn't do that. Um, Jesus shouldn't have done that because he was not only a Jew, but he was a rabbi. He shouldn't have filthied himself with the Gentile people, but he went there. Not only that, he went to his cemetery Jewish rabbis, good Jewish rabbis don't go to dirty, filthy Gentile cemeteries. Jody talked to you about how they burial practice people, right? They wrapped up the body and let them decay for a long time. This was a place of disgusting filth and terrible smells and bones and flesh rotting. Good Jewish people just didn't go hang out in cemeteries. It was unclean because of the dead bodies, and in Jewish culture cemeteries were considered um, inhabited by evil spirits. There was kind of this myth, kind of like we have in today's culture where you know cemeteries have this creepy kind of connotation. Same in Jesus's day. And when he went to where culturally he shouldn't have been, he encountered two men possessed by demons and they were hanging out in these burial caves. This is kind of built into the rock wall that we saw um, right here. Um, in the sides of the hills, there would be a, a cemetery away from the top of the city where people lived, down below where um, the, the, they would bury the people so they were away from the stench cave. Um, this is what it would look like. There would be holes built into the side of the cave, and they would go put their dead people in there. So imagine Jesus pulls up on the side of the shore, and he pulls up practically right in the tomb region, and he's greeted by two possessed people that were so fierce that nobody could pass that way. People in that day um, said that the tombs were unclean, so if you were unclean, you have to go hang out where uncleanliness was. So people who were possessed by demons, the people in the city didn't know what to do with them. Um, They put them to where the unclean people went. They had no other place to live. The violence of these demon-possessed people kept them from the rest of civilization. Mark's Gospels record that these men had been bound with strong chains and metal shackles, but they were strong enough because of the demon possession that they could break through those shackles. There was nothing that could restrain them. Their physical strength was unparalleled, and the people of the region had given up on trying to constrain these men and had relegated these men to a place with no hope, the tombs. That was now their home. Now, I want to make a brief note Um, Without spending the entire time this morning on spiritual warfare, there needs to be a base understanding of what's happening in this passage. Um, In October, we're going to spend the month talking about spiritual warfare. We'll go into this a little more in depth so that we understand what the Bible has to say about demons and possession and the devil and these kinds of things we need to understand. This morning, here's the brief summary. There's one God, he's holy and righteous. There's one enemy of God who's profane and evil. Scripture calls this enemy Satan, the devil, the serpent, the father of lies. There's a ton of other names in the scriptures for him. Satan's only goal before the end of days is to destroy life, destroy people, destroy families, destroy. That's what he does. He is going to divide, cause sin, and tempt people. So in October, we're going to look a little more in depth about this. But we must understand this morning that there is a battle that is taking place. Currently now and then in that day, between God and the devil. There are two sides and two sides only. God is an all-powerful, all-knowing, wonderful deity. Satan is not all-powerful, all-knowing. God is everywhere, at all times, all-present. Satan is not. God wants to give life and hope regardless of circumstances. Satan wants to destroy and prevent people from receiving life, hope, and grace. Christ has conquered Satan for all time with his work on the cross, and scripture is clear that demons, those fallen angels who work for Satan and against God, can inhabit people who've not professed faith in Christ. This is what we've encountered this morning in scripture, something called possession, wherein people who have not professed faith in Christ, have not been filled with the Holy Spirit, have given their life over to sin in such a way that it opened a door. For instead of being controlled by the Spirit towards holiness and godliness, they are controlled by demons towards unholiness and ungodliness. And this is who Jesus has encountered today. Um, Possession. Um, In both of these verses, demon possession is distinguished from illness. Okay? So... Um, In our day and age, there's kind of um, this idea that there's illness and demon possession, and they're separate, sometimes the same. Some denominations will teach that all illnesses are a result of demons. Uh, That's not true. Sometimes we just get sick because we live in a fallen world. Um, Jesus wants us to understand that in this case, there's not an illness, there's a demon. Um, the Greek word which I cannot pronounce, involves the indwelling of unseen evil spirits in a way that prevents the individual from controlling their own actions. Exorcists abounded in ancient Judaism and Greco-Roman regions, but Jesus is the only one who has the authority to cast out. And he did it with directness, immediacy, and effectiveness. Jesus, the king, enters and says, I don't like what's going on here in my kingdom. I'm going to bring in a new kingdom. We're going to take care of this problem. And that's what he does. Verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Um, They knew Jesus was the son of God. Very first thing, before anyone could make any introductions, before anyone said, Jesus, son of God. People possessed by demons shake hands, get to know one another. They call out to him, What have you to do with us, son of God? They pose a similar danger to Jesus and the disciples as that storm in the preceding verse. Something that the disciples cannot overcome on their own. A great danger to their own life and well being because they were uncontrollable. But these two demon possessed men knew the answer to the question that the disciples posed Who is this man? They can calm the waves and the seas. What kind of man is this? They answered it. With no possible lines of communication prior to that, they addressed Jesus as the Son of God. We know exactly who you are. And then they say this, what have you to do with us? Directly translated, it means what to us and to you. In modern day language, it might be like, this is an A and B conversation, Jesus, so see your way out of it. You don't have any say over us here. What we're doing has nothing to do with what you're doing. Be on your way, is basically what they're saying. The equivalent Hebrew expression had two meanings, this what to you, what to us and to you. It means when one person was unjustly bothering another, or when someone was asked to be involved in a matter he felt no, was no business of his own. So there's this idea of first, Hostility, listen, you're unjustly involved in my life. Or um, indifference, this is none of my business. I don't have any business partaking in this. Two ideas in which people in the ancient world would say, What to us and to you? Let's see your way out of this conversation, folks. This has nothing to do with you. They are basic notions of defensive hostility and indifference or disengagement. Kind of like this A&B conversation, so see your way out. Hostility between Jesus and these demons is to be understood in this context. The demons are asking Jesus to leave them alone, to disengage his purpose in their existence, to step back from his will and his kingship so that they will not be hindered in what they are doing. They recognized that there was an appointed time. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They recognized that Jesus is king. They recognized that there is a time in which they will face judgment. And they seem to have viewed Jesus' arrival on the scene as an illegitimate change to God's plan regarding the time in which their sentence would be executed. What's up, man? I thought we had more time. You're here a little early What's it to you? Be on your way. We've still got things we want to do. Judaism taught that demons were free to work until the coming of the Messiah and the end of the present evil age. And so these demons were working under the assumption that we still got time to mess with people. And the men's question points to Jesus' identity as the Messiah and King and the fact that his ministry was ushering in the new kingdom they thought that they had until the Messiah arrived and the new age arrived. Well, guess what? The Messiah arrived and the new age had arrived and Jesus was saying, guess what? I'm I'm king and I can say when you can and when you can't and I'm in control of these moments and I'm in control of you. So like Satan at Jesus' temptation, they acknowledged him as the son of God. They recognized their eventual doom and then I love, I love the Gospel of Mark's telling of this. This just cracks me up. There's humor in the Bible. Um, Mark says that the disciples or that the, the demons tried to get rid of Jesus by casting Jesus out. Like we hear about exorcists who cast out in the name of Jesus, right? But the demons used Jesus' name to try and cast Jesus out of their own life. It says this in the Gospel of Mark. The demon said, we adjure you by the name of God. Can you picture this? You're Jesus. You have two demon-possessed people in front of you. You know who you are. You're the king. You're the son of God. And the demons look at you and go, in the name of Jesus, we cast you out, Jesus. I I just wonder what Jesus was thinking in that moment. Like, that's really funny. You can't cast me out. I It's my name you're using. It doesn't work like that. It shows the misunderstanding the demons had about the kind of power that they thought they could command. They cannot command that. Demons are not concerned to confess Jesus's identity, but they're using his name to try and leverage something for themselves and their evil purposes. They ultimately failed in casting Jesus out. It just doesn't work like that, okay? So, um, in return, uh, Jesus says, "Um, listen, we're going to handle this the right way. I'm going to cast you out. You can try all you want to kick and scream against me, but I'm still going to have my will and my way here. The demons thought his arrival was premature, that the judgment day had not come. They overlooked that the heavenly and the holy was breaking into human history through Jesus, right? That... Jesus was demonstrating the inauguration of God's kingdom in that very moment. Even if he granted demons a limited freedom for a limited time, the kingdom was still here. He'd broken through. So this is what happened. A herd of many pigs, verse 30, was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him because they knew they were going to get cast out. It's a matter of time. He was king. They tried. They failed. Now it was Jesus' turn. They begged him, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out. They went into the herd of pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down into the steep bank, into the sea, drowned in the waters. When the demons recognized that Jesus was going to cast them out, and the word if there, if you cast us out, was not if you're going to. It was when you're going to. We get that you're going to, so here's our condition on this. When you cast us out, they wanted to delay their total destruction and request a new home. Swine, pigs, like the tombs, were considered defiled in Jewish culture, unclean. But it afforded an appropriate refuge for that which was already defiled, those that followed Satan. So we learn three things about the spirit being's request, okay? Three things about these demons. First, that they either need to inhabit a physical body, or they found inhabiting a physical body more preferable than not. So they asked for a replacement from these humans. Second, Jesus has the power to drive them out and to leave them without a home if he so desired. Third, while demons are not physical beings, they seem to be bound by the physical laws that physical beings are. Physicality has a significance for them, meaning they can only be in one place at one time. Let's dispel the myth that Satan is all-knowing and all-powerful right here in this very moment. He's not. Limited to time and space like we are. So, Jesus exercised his authority with one word, go. This one word is a command. It is a granting of permission, they had requested something. So as a king, he heard their request, he granted their permission, and then he dismisses them. Be gone. There's a lot of stuff that happened in this one word. There is the divine authority of Jesus. Go. I'm done with you. You can no longer inhabit these people. Be gone. And so they had to leave. The pigs drowning didn't surprise Jesus or the demons. Demons by nature are destructive. So they threw the shrine off these rocky cliffs near the eastern shores of Galilee. And nothing in the Bible suggests that angels or demons can die. So what we must understand from Matthew is that the whole herd of pigs perished because these demons had to finish out their evil intent. Left the demons homeless at that point. But what we must understand is that while Jesus in this action continued to allowed the demons to continue to exist, they were no longer allowed to wreak havoc on these men. Jesus walked into these two men's lives that were destroyed by sin, demons, powers of evil, whatever. He stepped into their messiness. He said, I see it. I'm not gonna allow it to continue any further. You must leave, and you must never come back to these people. When Jesus cleans house, he cleans house for good. These two men, they came to know who Jesus was, and they were never going to be the same again. They became productive members of society. They could move out of the tombs and back into the city. With the destruction of the herd of swine, Jesus basically destroyed the entire economy of that town. Their town's economy was based on these pigs. They all died. They had no more economy. Their town was destroyed. 2,000 pigs equal a lot of money. In verses 33 and 34, the herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, first off, um, we didn't hear about these herdsmen until just now. It flies on a wall on this story. Can you imagine? You're in charge of the entire city's wealth. Man pulls up in a boat, has a weird conversation with the two crazy people that live in the tombs. Demons come out of these men, go into the pigs. Your entire city's investment is dead. You run back to the city. You're never going to guess what happened. We're so poor now. We are done for. But those two people who were crazy that couldn't live with us, we couldn't do anything about, they're healed. Crazy story to run back and tell your people. The town freaked out. They didn't know how to handle this. They came running to Jesus. And they should have been excited about what happened. They should have been excited that these two people who were possessed by demons were no longer possessed by demons. That was good for their town. That was good for their families. That was good for these men. But they were more concerned with their pigs than they were for the well-being of these two men. In another gospel account of this story, it says when the whole town came back, they found these two men clothed, bathed, sitting at the feet of Jesus in their own right mind, listening to the words of the Lord. That's a pretty impressive thing. Something they couldn't accomplish, Jesus had accomplished with one word. They recognized his authority, what had happened, the pigs dead, the men healed, but they chose to reject him. That's where they get their name to obstruct the path of life. We see all of who you are, but we reject you. This town was no better Than the two demons who said, we see who you are, son of God, and we want nothing to do with you. It's an A and B conversation, so see your way out of it. They were dwelling on the pigs and their own fear, and they told Jesus to leave. They did not recognize his authority and potential leadership. Instead, they chose to reject him. Jesus' power is divine and holy, but sometimes... Sinful human beings recoil in the presence of holiness because it points out our own shortcomings all the more glaringly. Case in point, Adam and Eve. Sinful? Yes. Realized their sinfulness, ran and hid from God. We do this time and time again in our life. This town is no different. They saw Jesus and his holiness enter into their lives, do something they couldn't do under their own power because he's the king And in that, they saw fear. They were scared of the power of God. And they told him to leave. And this is a modern misunderstanding we have. Modern readers look into this passage, and we don't understand the significance of the conflict with evil. As the Messiah and the Son of God, Jesus, he arrived into a world that was controlled by evil. Demons were running amok. Sin was running amok. The whole world was decaying into a, just a cesspool of disgusting things that God didn't like. But he said, I care about the world and I want to enter into this and I want to do battle with the devil so that people that I love can have hope and life. His very arrival confronts and challenges evil and evil must give way before his power and authority. There's no other option. Evil bows before the King Jesus And the disciple who believes this will trust and obey Jesus. But those who fear new life cling to their patterns that were established by evil. And they beg Jesus to leave. Listen, we are more scared of change than we are of the evil we live in. As a world, this is true. We're more comfortable living in our sin, which is evil, which puts us on the team of the devil, than not the team of God. We're more comfortable to live in our own sin, to manage our personal devils, because we know them, we understand their patterns, we're comfortable there. We're more comfortable with that, even though it's evil, because we're scared to run to Jesus and allow him to exercise his authority in our life, because that's going to mean change, and change is more scary than the devil to us. One of the greatest things the devil ever told us. It's more scary to change. It's as true today as it was in the first century. Here is the important stuff you need to know. Jesus is king over everything. He's king over disease, he's king over disaster, he's king over demons, he's king over sin, he's king over hell, he's king over heaven, he's king over our families, he's king over our finances, everything he's king over. There is nothing he can't speak into with authority, he is king, and his desire as king is to bring about a kingdom in which healing and peace and holiness abound. That's his desire. Wherever he goes, that's what follows. But people are scared of evil, but more scared of change. That can be true for us. We're scared of evil, but we're more scared of change. We worry that trusting in Christ might upend our entire way and style of life, and it will. But for the better. It is far better to follow Jesus, regardless of the change that needs for our life, than it is to stay in sin and submission to Satan. People will rather stay where they're comfortable, even if it's bad, because they fear the change that comes, even if that change leads to health. Like dogs that just want to lick their wounds. You're more comfortable with that pain than you are with the idea of maybe going to the doctor and getting a shot and it's sewed up. Comfortable where you are. Christ followers are not to be scared of evil. Where are the disciples in this passage? I looked, and I couldn't find them. They're sitting slack-jawed in the boat. Who is this man? I mean, just picture. You're the disciple. You think you're going to die in the boat. You finally make it to shore. Waves have calmed. You're like, finally, we can get out of that crazy. And what do you step into? Two demon-possessed men? And Jesus walks up to him like, no big deal. I got this. Who is this man? They're repeating the question. They're nowhere in this passage. They didn't say... He's God, we're with him. They're standing back there going, I I, I can't, I don't understand. We're not to be scared of evil, but we're to engage it. We're to do what Jesus did. We're supposed to see evil around us and say, Jesus died for my sins. I don't have to fear this. Doesn't matter the circumstance. Jesus is my Lord. He lives in me and he works through me. I can handle the circumstance ...with God. Therefore, I don't have to be scared of evil. I don't have to be scared of sinful people. I don't have to be scared of sinful circumstances... ...because I know God dwells within me... ...and produces holiness and righteousness in me. Therefore, I can speak into people's lives. I can engage things that are evil... ...and I can say it doesn't have to go any further... ...because God God says so. Um, We are not to live in fear... ...like the disciples did in the boat... ...and on the ministry field... Because if we believe that Jesus conquered death and evil for all time on the cross, then we can proceed in any ministry context, in any life context, without fear. But in doing God's work, you might be rejected. You approach a situation without fear, but you might be rejected. And sometimes that's our fear. What if they reject me? What if they don't like what I have to say? What if I'm no longer their friend? What if, what if, what if? Jesus is the king over what ifs. So just let him have those, okay? Proceed into ministry. You might be rejected. I'll be your pastor and I'll tell you, you will be rejected as you try and do ministry. It's just part of being on the team of Jesus. In this world, you have trials and tribulations, Jesus said. The world might hate you, but it hates not you, but me in you, okay? So we take heart that he's still king over these things. Rejection is not an excuse to stop. Jesus was rejected by this town. He was rejected by his town. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by the culture. But it never stopped him from loving the town, the people, or the culture. He never gave up. Every time he was rejected, he just continued saying, God loves you, I'll come for you, I'll speak into you, I'll heal you, I'll be with you, I'll pray with you, I'll share a meal with you. I'm not going to give up, is what King Jesus said. In fact, he proceeded so far as to die in our place for our sins on the cross and then calls us to live the way he lived. To go into difficult ministry situations when we're very tired and we'd rather sleep, he calls us to say, nope, if it's a ministry situation that has presented itself, draw upon the strength of the Holy Spirit and engage it. Do not be scared of rejection. See the broken, sinful, confused lives around you and engage, engage, engage. What Jesus did when he was tired, he got on a boat and then there was a storm and he calmed the storm. He was still probably tired from all that ministry. He got out of the boat. He had a difficult ministry experience. He engaged it and then what did he do? He got back on the boat. Okay. His whole point in going over there was to see, will the Gentiles receive me in this place? Well, two of them did, and in another gospel, this is what he told them to do. Go, tell them what I did for you. Start a church. Now, here's the bad news about this city. They're forever recorded as being gadar, blocking the way of life for their townsfolks. But do you want to know what happened with those two people who were possessed, and then Jesus came and saved them? They planted a church. Um, there's actually excavated church on that site. Um, that stands as a testimony to the fact that God did work his way into the hearts of the Gentiles in that region because of the faithful witness of two people who were told, Jesus actually said, don't come with me, stay here. They wanted to go with him. He said, no, you're made clean. Those demons are not going to come back. You now must go and minister to the people who don't love you, who don't like the things that I just did for you, and your job is to love them towards Jesus. Love them towards me. Engage them, even though it's going to be difficult day in and day out. Keep doing it, even though they're going to reject you. Down through time, lo and behold, the light of the Gentiles came to that city and that region. And that's great news, right? Because our city is much like that city. Dark. Lots of sin. Lots of people who don't love Jesus. This city needs the light of the Gentiles to come into it and we are that light and we've talked about this a lot that map um it's our own little um island if you were when church growth people talk about church and church growth they talk about islands concentric circles around your church that there's your church building and then there's the half mile radius around your church that's your direct oikos for your church, your direct population. The people who, by proximity, if they're going to attend a church, will come to your church. Then you've got the mile radius, the three-mile radius, and the five-mile radius. Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Okay, It's based on that model. That's about our half-mile-to-mile mile radius. Okay, That's the people that, by default, if they're going to go to church, they're going to come to our church. So... By default, those are the people that we are committed to by location, love, serve, engage. Even if we knock on the door and they say, we don't want what you're selling, we say, that's okay. Can I pray for you? And if they say no, okay. And you leave. And it's okay that they reject you. But you continue to pray for them that by all means they might come to know who Jesus is. So we've got opportunities to claim some house numbers. You don't know their names yet. Claim some house numbers and pray for them regularly. Add them to your prayer list. Knock on their door with a door hanger for the event that's coming up. Get to know their names. Then pray for them by name. Remember their faces and see them at the grocery store. Be like those two people in this story who were healed of something great but were called to live in a city that wanted nothing to do with the testimony they had. They didn't give up. They continued knocking on doors. They continued telling people about Jesus. They continued living according to the power of the Holy Spirit which filled them with holiness, which is the exact opposite of the way that they had lived. People would have rather than lived with demons than heard the good news of Jesus, right? We know the truth. We would rather be filled with the Holy Spirit and continually be rejected than live the other way. We're called to live like these two people, heal, continually pursuing the people around us. And I believe that if we're faithful in that, we've already seen the fruit of this. God will continue to save souls save families, redeem people from sin. And that's what this map represents, our little concentric circle, people that we're praying for. Uh, I'm hoping you're excited to engage in that with me because I'm surely excited to. I've already claimed my people. um, Knock on those doors, pray for those people, get to know their kids, build into their lives, see if there's ways in which I can serve them because I want to be a good neighbor. I don't want to live in the tombs down the street and never be known by my neighbors be known by my neighbors as someone who loves them, not creepily, but continually tells them about Jesus, right? Um, Let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll sing a few songs, and uh, we'll dismiss you all to your Father's Day plans. Lord, I'm thankful that you're a great king and that you entered into things that humans would have never entered into. If it was up to the disciples alone, they would have never been in the boat in the first place, let alone they would have never sailed to that shore, They would have never encountered those two men who desperately needed you. Culturally, we look at people who seem to have big struggles as, boy, I wish they could just get control of their life. I wish they just knew how to, they don't know how to, they're horrible people. But Lord, you looked at people who just weren't in control of their actions and you said, sin has got a hold of them. And the only way for sin to be released from them is for me to enter into their lives. I'm thankful, Lord, that you speak so commandingly, that you did so in my life, that you said, I love you, and I forgive you, and those words have changed me forever. Thank you for freeing me from the things in which you freed me from. Thank you for freeing us from the things that you have freed us from. Set us on a path, Lord, to reach the people of this city, so that all people in this city might be like those two people in this story, cleansed from their sin listening to your words, following your commands, and leading other people to know more about you. That's our prayer and our hope this morning. We give you all the praise and all the glory, and with one voice we say, amen. Here's the benediction, guys. There's nothing that Jesus isn't king over. You don't have to be scared of anything, so go live accordingly, Amen? amen? Amen.